Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for Tuesday, June 14th. I'm Rubina Ahmed, Hawking for Greg Brady. And on today's show, we spoke with Nita Chinser, an associate professor at the University of Guelph, about the pressure of returning to the office. We also find out about incel culture with Trevor Mayo, principal consultant at Equity Leaders, and a whole lot more. It all starts now. Have you been asked to come back to work in person? More and more employees who have been working remote um, are being asked by their employer, their company, uh, to return to the office in person. Now, not everybody is going back nine to five full time. In many cases, companies are asking employees to come back to a hybrid model. Uh, But what I'm hearing is that most companies that are asking for that hybrid model or proposing that hybrid model really want employees to commit to certain days. So it's not like you can say, I'll be in one day a week and you just come in whenever you feel like it. You've got to say, I'm going to be in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then that way, the your colleagues know that you're in, your boss knows that you're in, people know where to find you. And then Thursday, Friday, they know that you're going to be working remote. Now, there has been some stories, uh, some companies that have announced that they're going to be fully remote, Spotify being one of the big uh, examples uh, of a company that announced very early in the pandemic, in my opinion, that they're going to be never going back to an in-office work environment, but they're going to be remote. Uh, But other companies like Netflix and Tesla saying, we want our employees in full-time, 40 hours a week, just like it was before uh, the pandemic. Actually, uh, Elon Musk famously saying, well, not famously, but uh, saying it was making headlines last week about how if you want to pretend to work somewhere else, you can go work somewhere else. I'm paraphrasing. That's not exactly what he said, but basically saying that people are pretending to work when they are working remote, which anyone who has been working remote will say that is not the case. I wanted to bring in our guest, Anita Schinzer. She's an associate professor of human resources in the Department of Management at the University of Guelph to talk about the in-person return to work. Welcome to the program, Nita. Thanks. It's a hot topic you picked today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people have a real visceral reaction when they're told that yes. they want to, they're being told to go back into the office. You know, what is your opinion um, about that reaction that employ? because you were hearing these surveys over and over again saying, mm-hmm. if you make me go back in, I'm going to quit my job. What's your reaction to that kind of attitude that many employees are taking? I think some of that's completely legitimate. I think there are a lot of people who are doing jobs that you know, you're going to go into the office and do the exact same thing. The job is pretty static. There's not a lot of room for growth. It's an independent work. So perhaps someone who may be in accounting or in payroll, you know, those kinds of jobs are a little bit more independent. But when that's coming from someone who's working in a job that is dynamic or in an industry that's changing, or maybe has gone through an organization that's changed its own base, going back and becoming part of the fabric of society and of, of the workplace and realizing what all those changes mean, not just for your job, but for how the organization operates, is almost a must. So in those cases, that's where Elon Musk is saying, we're not the same company we were two years ago. Mm -hmm. So you've been in this static role. It's time to come back and it's time to re-energize. So I guess a lot of it does come down to the job. I also hear a lot about people who want to stay at home for different reasons. So sometimes the reasons we want to stay at home are legitimate. And other times it's because We've moved so far away from the city that it's just really an affordability issue. Can we get to work? Yes. And how much is the gas going to cost? And do we want to take public transportation? And those are the unfortunate realities of our choices that we made during the pandemic. 
So companies save money with a remote workforce. Uh, there was a survey out a couple of weeks ago uh, that said that uh, a company, the com- the combined amount between a company and the individual, the employee, is about $14,000 uh, 14, $14, a year. So that is including the real estate that they have to rent for that person to work from yes. the office. That's including the cost of that person commuting to and from work, so their out-of-pocket costs. Um, but companies are still willing to bring employees back. What case are they making for that? Why are they asking employees to come back when it is a obvious money saver? Yeah, well, some companies look at their their labor as a cost. They look at their human resources as a cost, and others see it as an investment. Mm-hmm. So the companies that are perhaps spending fourteen thousand or more, they are doing things such as providing subsidized daycare, and that's part of the package. They're providing meals or some form of uh, social exchange at work. They've got extra space for you to go and and detox a little bit, and they're providing a little bit more service when it comes to what's going on physically when you go to work. And so that was one of the early debates that we had is that now we're all working from home. Who's paying for our tech support? Who's paying for, you know, when something happens and we need a maintenance issue? Who's paying for the breakfast we used to all have together? Those costs are all suddenly the savings that were happening, happening, but companies are seeing those still as an investment in making sure that we're productive. So in the short term, they might say 14,000, but if they can keep good employees, continue to train and develop them, continue to build camaraderie amongst their teams, then that is why they want people back. And early you started with this concept that we have to tell them when we're coming back. It's because now they want to get on top of this and start doing the proper planning. I think the original back to work was completely flawed. We go in and there'd be nobody to talk to. And now we're going in and they're like, okay, well, let's figure out that the days that you're in, you shouldn't be in Zoom meetings all day. The days that you're in, your manager should know that you're in. Mm -hmm. Days that you're in, maybe your colleagues should be in. So it's becoming almost bubbled together that way. I cover uh, personal finance and workplace. That's my jam normally when I'm not guest hosting. And I've uh, really Uh. changed my opinion about uh, the back to in-person work. In the beginning, I was very much on board with, you know, we should be able to be remote most of the time. Why do we have to spend an hour going into work when we don't have to? But lately, I have been seeing the benefit of being in person, the collaboration that happens, the dynamic of being a one-on-one, the relationships that you can build. Um, Are some people missing the point of how how important it is to have that, even if it is a job that you could realistically do from your home? Well, so our jobs are not just about here is the task that you are to do today. We also have to stay up to date and up to speed. Two years is a long time. We have people who have never stepped foot in the office. We have people who have, you know, their entire job has been redesigned. We have people who are part of new teams. And so there definitely needs to be a refresh, but research from before the pandemic gives us two big glaring red lights that are probably part of this. One of the glaring red lights is that if there's too many people working from home or if there's inconsistency, then the people who are coming into the office begin to feel work isolation. So that work isolation then is contagious. People working from home feel isolated. People who are working from the office feel isolated if we don't get a big enough mass number of people coming into the office. So that's why there's this big push that we want to see you want a minimum of these days to ensure that that mass occurs so that those collaborative and innovative and dynamic opportunities exist. The second is that pre-COVID, working from home in a hybrid environment was pretty much detrimental to your career. It would be this chance, it was called the proximity factor, but Mm -hmm. essentially because we're out of sight, we're also out of mind and we get passed up a lot for training and development opportunities. 
We get passed up for promotion opportunities. We're not part of those you know, coffee talks that are happening or those talks that are happening about what the new projects are. And so as a result of that, even pre-COVID, there was this idea that, that when we're in a hybrid environment, those of us who are working from home exclusively were largely out of sight, out of mind, and not it wasn't a career advancing factor. So those two pieces of research from the past still apply. Absolutely. And it's those micro conversations that happen when you're in person. Mm -hmm. It's not the big stuff. You know, people think, well, you're not in a boardroom brainstorming because you can easily organize that and have people come in and, and brainstorm. And, and in fact, you could probably brainstorm pretty well, even over Zoom or, or over a, another video conferencing app. But it's really those little conversations that you have where you start to understand your colleagues, start to understand how each other works that help you in your career. You know where to go to to get certain types of information. Uh, uh, Anita, back in 2019, the World Health Organization identified burnout as an occupational phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you remember that. And, you okay. know, even before the pandemic, people were saying that they're burnt out. They're they're feeling like, uh, you know, uh, that they're at, uh, in the workplace, that they're, they don't have um, uh, enough time with their family. And the pandemic sort of created this opportunity for people to realize, oh, this is the work-life balance that I have been craving. This is the way that I want to work so that I can see my kids and I can do the things during the day that I've been missing out on. Is hybrid work that happy medium between the two? Uh, can, can we sort of go back to the way things were, but in a hybrid environment so that we don't get to a point where people are feeling that burnout again by, you know, mainly complaining about the commute and time away from the family? Right. So I do think that there is the opportunity, perhaps in some jobs, to work from home one or two days of the week, you know, a fraction of the days of the week. But the concept of burnout is uh, on a day to day level. Maybe we're not seeing it, but all of the research is coming out of places like Harvard Business Review and places like research think tanks shows that when we work from home, we're actually working more. So we're spending more hours women on average 6%, men on average 10% working because the correspondence, the email correspondence, the number of meetings we're attending and all of that actually increase. So although we're working more, we're not being more productive. Our productivity is, you know, not as much as the extra hours that we're putting in. The other thing that we're seeing from the research is when we're working from home, we're not taking our legitimate sick days. When we're sick for a week, we just sit there and we continue to work and we don't recharge our batteries. We don't take our vacation as much when we're remote and we're working from home. So while it may feel like, oh, this is great because I get to go out and put in a load of laundry, we're actually not treating ourselves very well when we work from home. I'm glad you mentioned that load of laundry because um, as, as a mom of two, uh, one thing yes. that working from home has done is that now I feel like I should be doing other things while I'm working. Whereas if you go into an office, you're focused on that. Like I'm hosting the radio show today from the studio. And to be honest, when I'm hosting from home during that those little five minute breaks, I'm thinking about what I can do. Uh, to clean the kitchen or maybe actually said throw a load of laundry and my brain goes somewhere else. I'm not focused on what I'm doing. And I actually end up feeling more stressed at the end because I'm trying to do too much. Are you worried about um, what remote work might mean for the long term for women? Well, for women, also racialized minorities have some issues, people who have elder care responsibilities too. When we're working from home and we begin to push ourselves a little bit too far, there's no check and balance in place. There's no colleague saying, hey, you know, you look stressed. Let's go for mm -hmm. lunch. There's no one saying that. You're saying you're taking those micro breaks and we all take micro breaks in the day, but you're taking those micro breaks to do more work. And earlier when we were talking about the informal conversations, 
earlier, when you needed a micro break, you'd go for coffee with a colleague, you'd go for a walk, you'd spend, you'd go to a meeting five minutes early and have an informal conversation with a colleague. And so that was still very much staying mentally in the space of work and bouncing back and forth, putting so much personal and professional responsibility on ourselves on the nine to five is a big cause of burnout. Burnout is real for remote workers and workers from the office. The difference is workers in the office. At least there's somebody who is watching saying, you know what, you're not treating yourself so well. Let's think about, you know, what are you still doing in the office at seven o'clock? Why did you, we would never go back to the office at midnight, but we would go and check our email at midnight. Mm -hmm. Like there, there's checks and balances in place. So I think that that's still something that's unfolding, unfortunately. Maybe this right to disconnect may be as successful as people are hoping it is. But, you know, that's that's really coming from this idea that people are not logging off. They're coming back and checking their email at night. And there's no check and balance with that. Yeah, absolutely. Nita, thank you so much uh, for joining the program today and for weighing in on because a lot of people are talking about what this means uh, going forward, going back to work in person. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. That's Nita Schinzer. She's an associate professor of human resources in the Department of Management at the University of Guelph. It's time for our four for four quiz with Sheba, Gord, Dave, and me. This is my first time, so go easy on me, guys. (laughs) Dave asks the questions, and we try to answer them to the best of our ability. I suck at trivia. I'm just going to put that out there before we start. (laughs) Dave, what's today's quiz all about? This one's not too bad, actually. On this day in 1949, Albert II became the first monkey, first primate, first mammal in space. Ooh. Mm. The Reese's monkey, one of several animals used. He survived his ascent to 134 kilometers in altitude. Sadly, he died on his return to Earth, but we don't oh, talk about that part. Know. It was a parachute failure that was the problem. Anyway, oh. I digress. So today, we're going to have uh, fun <laughs> facts about monkeys and animals in space. All right. Let's All do right. it. So the first question is a true or false question. Albert II was only the first monkey in space because Albert I bit his handler as he was being loaded into the rocket. Is that true or false, Rubina? I'm going to say that is true because often that is one of the disqualifying reasons why animals are no longer used in tests because they show aggression. So I'm going to say that's true. All right. Sheba? I agree. I think that's true. I would be biting someone's hand if they unwillingly put me in a (laughs) spaceship as well. And Gord? Yeah, I think I have to make it a clean sweep because I think that's what happened to Michael Collins and he was forced to stay on the capsule while the other two went on the moon. (laughs) He bit somebody? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's actually false. In 1948, okay, he died of suffocation during the flight. So he was was headed to space, but he never actually made it. I like my answer better. Yeah, the capsule only made, uh, made a height of... 39 miles or oh. 63 kilometers. So, yeah, it was... Poor a, Albert the First. I know. It's a sad time. Uh, we'll pour, pour one <laughs> and out. And Albert the Second. <laughs> so much better for him. It really, it didn't go well for many of these uh, animals in space in the early going. True or false, space monkeys are also known as monkey knots. Oh. Shiba? I, uh, I'm going to say false. I've never heard that before. Gord? Um... Monkey knots. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say true. All right, Ravina. I'm gonna say true. That sounds like something you would call a monkey astronaut. A monkey knot. That sounds believable. I'm gonna say true. Yeah, it is true. Actually, oh. so yeah, the uh, they call them monkey knots, and it's actually spurred a cartoon that is uh, currently out there, which I found very interesting. I was like, "What is a monkey knot?" And I looked at 
turns out it's a cartoon. Um, <laughs> anyway, I digress. Number three is a multiple choice question. Miss Baker is another rhesus monkey who flew on a successful mission to space in 1959. She was two years old at the time, became a national celebrity in the U.S. How old was she when she died? Was she 10, 39, or 27? Gord? What was the first one? 10 years old. Oh, um, 10, 39, or 27? Let's go with 37. No, okay. No, it was 10, 39, or 27. <laughs> oh, 27, sorry. <laughs> Rubina. Okay, so you're going with 27? 27. So I'm going to go with 39. No, all right. And Sheba? Well, I don't think she was 10, so I'm going to go with 27 as well. Yeah, it was 27. Miss Baker became the first monkey to survive the stresses of space flight and the related medical procedures. We don't want to talk about that. But anyway, she oh. died oh, man. Uh, in 1984 at the age of 27. She's actually buried on the grounds of the United States Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Wow. Oh, wait, does anyone know the lifespan of monkey? Uh, no. no. Okay. I would think it wouldn't be... More than 30, 40 years for a monkey. Yeah. Do they live longer than that? I can't imagine. So uh, she lived a pretty good long life, I think. And that's uh, what everybody seemed to think about Miss Baker. Mm. Uh, Number four is also a multiple choice question. Which of the following animals have successfully been launched into space and returned in good health? (laughs) I wanted to end this one off on a happy note. Uh, Dogs and cats, rabbits, mice and rats... A chimpanzee, a chimpanzee, all of the above, or none of the above? Rubina? Oh. Well, you said you wanted to end on a happy note, so <laughs> I'm going to say all of the above. Fingers crossed. All right. Sheba? I'm going with the same answer, all of the above. Gord? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw footage, and it could have been a, a Russian monkey that was successful. So, yeah, I'm going to agree and say uh, all of the above. Yeah, it is all of the above. And actually, in August of 1960, a Soviet Union craft was launched carrying most of those animals all in one go. It was like Noah was a spaceman. And yeah, the craft became the first to go into orbit with all animals returning alive. The chimp was sent out on a later flight just three months before NASA sent the first human to space. Oh. Mm. Wow. Okay, there you if go. you had the opportunity, would any of you want to go to space? Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Go. I just, oh, yeah. uh, I don't well. think they make spacesuits big enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just wouldn't want to get out of the uh, spacecraft. I think I just want to go see it, come back. I don't want to oh, do any moonwalk or anything. Oh, that would be the best part. Oh, like, that would be the best part. way too scary to be out there in the unknown. Like the ones they're doing now, like with the celebrities, you just kind of go, just leave. Yeah, the, I want to be like a back. celebrity. Yeah, That's exactly Come right back down. <laughs> yeah. do a celebrity exactly the message I want to send people. <laughs> uh, a self-described incel. Uh, who killed 11 people when he plowed a rented van into a busy Toronto sidewalk in 2018, has been sentenced to life in prison. We've been hearing a lot about uh, the victim impact statements that were read yesterday when Alex Manassian was sentenced to uh, life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. Um, He he has said uh, he was an incel motivated by hatred of women um, after he killed uh, eight women and two men. uh, And he... uh, said that he was um, part of this culture, this incel culture, uh, which we know so little about and um, really does uh, live online in many chat rooms, um, is a way that uh, young men uh, talk to each other, uh, get uh, ideas from each other. And uh, he, of course, 
uh, said to uh, said that he was a self-described incel. To find out more what incel is, what's being done to combat uh, young men or men in general who are being radicalized in this culture, uh, we're joined by Trevor Mayo. He's Principal Consultant at Equity Leaders. Trevor is a diversity, inclusive and violence prevention consultant, works with government and corporate partners on deconstructing gender norms and creating innovative violence prevention programming. He specializes in uh, engaging leaders in male-dominated industries to champion gender equity and other broader diversity and inclusive initiatives. Welcome to the program, Trevor. Thanks so much for having me. Trevor, explain to me what is incel culture? So incel, the word itself means involuntary celibate. So it's usually men who gather together um, centered around their inability to find love and sexual fulfillment, essentially. And so an incel um, is sort of based around this entitlement to this the sexual and romantic um, interest and, and, and conquest, if you will, of women. And but they are they bitterly resent um, and sort of um, push back when women reject them, when they push back on that entitlement. So it, it, it really when you boil it down to it, it really it's it's violent misogyny. Um, and, and the community, as you mentioned, really exists online. We hear so many things about like 4chan or deep things on Reddit, but this manosphere, if you will, it's it's the space where uh, people come together to sort of practice that misogyny um, is, is really sort of built on low self-esteem, um, resistance to sort of seeking therapy, um, really sort of venting a lot of this insecurity, this um, this hate, this this fear that um, that a lot of a lot of young men feel, and find a community online of like minded individuals, and sort of build up this radicalization of of hate, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, really, what it comes down to, people are thinking about it, it's not just like some angry person on a board, but it's it comes down to people think the, a lot of times these men feeling that they're physically unattractive, unworthy of love, and therefore um, any attempt to find a relationship or or sex is what success is primarily defined by is ultimately going to end in failure, mm-hmm. and it's going to make you even more unhappy. And so they find these communities online where it sort of builds up. There's a few manifestos of of incel manifestos that sort of speak of how society is built up to fail them and push them. And that slowly leads to the radicalization. And rejection is such a strong emotion. Anyone who's been rejected for anything um, knows how they feel immediately after and how it can make them feel, like you said, insecure and sidelined. What are we doing, though, to find these young men, especially who are going through this rejection for whatever reason, why they are, are unable to make uh, connections with uh, with the opposite sex, if that's what they're seeking out, and the feelings that they're having when they are rejected by them. What are we doing to help them understand how they can help themselves, like you said, through therapy? Yeah, and 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 the, the challenge is if if the if the sole thing here, if with success for young men, is defined by sexual conquest, if that's really what we're teaching young men, is one of our our, our prime sort of success models are. Then there's there's a challenge there because we need to go back and start to unprogram that and combat that central thought about what it means to be a man, what masculinity looks like, what that feels like, what 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 our de- definition of success, what our definition of health is on that. And if in at the same hand, if we're also talking that women are presented as fundamentally shallow and materialistic as it is in the incel community. And we're only attracted to beauty and nothing else. And feminism is the answer. We also need to go back and deconstruct what people's understanding of femininity and women uh, uh, and women are. 
And so that conversation needs to happen young. Uh, there is a conversation that obviously we need to go into these communities and have the, the conversation into these spaces to, to, to combat that. But we also need to start engaging young men about um, healthy relationships, about what it means to be a man, what their masculinity, what their, their health means to them. Um, for instance, we have with Next Gen Men, it's a boys club where we go in um, with um, non-binary young boys, youth in grade seven to nine to build connections with other like-minded uh, peers. And these are communities where people can actually um, hang out, connect, get support, discuss important topics in a safe, facilitated space. And, and that's an important thing for boys to navigate who they are, their insecurities, their frustrations, things that they're not un unsure of and, and confuse them and things that they sort of reject and they want to navigate, but do that in a space where there's not people there who are taking advantage of those insecurities and pushing them into a radical space. Allow them a space where they can do that in a healthy and effective way. And and the, the main thing that we push back on here and why this matters, because this isn't just about like, oh, Tim in, in the basement sort of upset right now. He's mm -hmm. I mean, grade seven. He's just navigating this. But this isn't so it's not just about a mass shooting van attack, but this is also about other forms of violence, gender based violence, sexual assault, physical assault, psychological assault, workplace harassment, all these different things. And we need to recognize how it builds because it starts with, you mean, a, a belief system of sexism, homophobia, racism. Then it moves to the next step, which is more um, exclusion, uh, maybe violent porn the next step is verbal expression which is harassment making making more violent jokes and then it moves to the physical expression of like sexual halt physical and then finally into things like um harm of self-harm or or harming others so there is a progression here and so we need to make sure that we're actually engaging young young men at the first side when they're starting to sort of navigate some of these um, attitudes and beliefs and online is where we need to be so finding spaces moderating the spaces and engaging them in, in a real way that actually acknowledges their insecurities and their frustrations. This story obviously was horrific. Uh, 10 people killed, 16 people injured. Um, it's left a, a, a stain on the city that no one is ever going to forget. Um, are we? Have we made progress? Because incel culture is something that we heard a lot about back in 2018. Um, now we're, we're talking more about it because of the sentencing. Uh, but, um, you know, I know a lot of women in my own life that have experienced this, where they've met somebody, they haven't been interested for whatever reason, and instead of that person accepting that that person is not interested in you, they've used it as an opportunity to... Uh, to harass them, to stalk them, to call them names, to to make them feel like their decision to not be with them was somehow um, uh, was somehow something that they were entitled to. They were entitled to your love and affection, and and instead, when they didn't get it, they react in a, a very violent and harassment uh, kind of way. It, are we making progress? I know with Next Gen Men that you are doing a lot of work with young men, but as a society, are we making progress at at actually? helping understand why this is happening and how we can help uh, these individuals and those people they victimize. I think in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. Because in some ways, yeah, absolutely, we're having the conversation with more men. More men are starting to tune in saying, listen, I don't see myself as part of the problem, but I actually need to be involved in finding a solution. I need to, I I have a role to play in challenging other people around me and 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 stepping into the, the arena, recognizing that. Uh, it's it's not enough for me just to think that I'm I'm not being problematic, but I actually need to actively challenge other people around me. So I think that's great. That's that's good. 
I think the other challenge is some of these communities, these online communities are getting more violent. They are, there are more online spaces. There are more communities where people are, are radicalizing themselves. Something as simple as like watching Instagram and seeing like these pickup artists on, or on TikTok and seeing pickup artists who sort of, or some of these podcasts that people are watching who are slowly, slowly pushing some of these, these, these viewpoints on. So there's more spaces for people to start to get some of these violent ideologies. And we're seeing that really, really activate online. Um, but I think the, the, the thing is, I, it's not just about going out and chatting to an individual who's radicalized. That's what's super important. But what is really important, too, is chatting to the young men or, or frankly, any men around us and saying, like, we need you involved in this. We need you to start talking to other men. We need you to start challenging. We need you to start informing yourself so you can also be involved in this. It's not up just to the women to say, like, oh, shoot, don't talk to me. It's not up just to us to talk to a radicalized uh, guy and say, hopefully we can bring you back and start to sort of lower the temperature a bit. But it's also about every single person who's listening right now every single person um no matter what gender they are to recognize that they have a role to play in having healthy conversations talking role modeling healthy uh, relationships and conversations with other people it's not just in the in, uh, internet it's for everyone whether in your workplace your home you're coaching a soccer team or you're hanging out with your buddies everyone has a role to play what about uh, places like Reddit, um, other social media platforms where uh, people who um, are feeling this way are meeting and talking about it? Um, the more that I read about it is that it's not necessarily even about sex. It's about male supremacy. It's about uh, dominating women, dominating the women that they choose that they want to be with. Um, how much do, do those platforms, uh, how much responsibility do they have to making sure these conversations don't even happen on, 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 their, on their sites? Well, so there's been some some subreddits that have actually been shut down because the language on there have has moved just from people venting or or making uh, violent statements, but to like sort of actual threats and activating and and sort of hyping each other uh, people up to acts of violence. So they have a role to play there. I I think what this this highlights though, if men are continuously going to these spaces to vent and find and and to sort of rile each other up, radicalize each other, all that. What that says is there's not enough spaces for men to have healthy conversations and navigate this. And that doesn't mean that we need more spaces for men to go off. It means that if if I as a male can't, in whether it be with friends or but with parents, like you don't actually have that conversation in a healthy way, then you start to seek out spaces where you can navigate those insecurities. You can seek out spaces where you can navigate those frustrations if they're not existing in your day-to-day -day life. And guess what happens? That means they're gonna end up on 4chan, 8chan, Reddit, subreddit, or, or frankly, forums that some of us may not even know about because that's where you can start to have those conversations and slowly get radicalized. So if we can create the spaces for us to have the conversation, say like, what's rattling you? What's insecure? Like, where is where is this, this frustration coming from? How can we have a conversation? How can we navigate that? That's where we start to have it. Once they go deep, deep into Reddit, that's a different space that's much more difficult to sort of bring people back from. Yeah, absolutely. Trevor, we have about uh, 20 seconds. Could you tell me a little bit more about Next Gen Men? Yeah, so next gen men, we work with young boys about, um, I mean, helping men and boys uh, feel less pain and cause less harm. And so we have a number of different initiatives for the workplace and that. But we also have the next gen men boys club. It's a free resource. It's the safest, uh, safe and positive community on Discord for young guys and non-binary youth to connect, support, and find and discuss topics. So nextgenmen.ca um, is an organization that's going to create those space for adolescents to explore masculinity, mental health, and then healthy relationships as well. Thank you so much, Trevor, for the work that you do and for joining us today to weigh in on this. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.
That's Trevor Mayo. He's principal consultant at Equity Leaders talking about incel culture and what we are doing as a society to fight it. Thank you for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. I'm Rabina Ahmad Huck, and I'll be back in for Greg Brady tomorrow for a live show from 530 to 9 on 640 Toronto. Have a great day.